0: Phone is that? That's
1: the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go, go home. Those those boys. That's yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Are oh, you can laugh Was the World Cup? I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You well, don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you want? Know I'd like to it. stay alive for six right, okay, I'd say it to your face I'll say it to you oh. now. Come I'm, I'm now. down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't with What you doing down here, you sure man.
2: Thanks very much for taking the time to listen to Monday's Irish Times Second Captains Football Podcast with Owen Devitt and Ken Early. Hi Ken. Hi Owen, are you? Brotherly love, Ken, brotherly love. Oh yeah. It's not a subject I'm particularly familiar with. No? Well, I haven't got a brother.
3: Ah, uh, but you didn't—you didn't have to be a blood brother. Oh, I've got loads of brothers. I've got loads of bros, Ken. Sure, seven—seven <laughs> seven billion bros. Well, you know, three and a half billion, give or take. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's—it's it's, it's one of those, um, I suppose, sexist uh, uh, piece of terminology. <laughs> really, it just means love for your fellow human beings.
2: If I did have a blood brother, I could only hope he was as fiercely loyal to me as Philip Neville is, to big bro Gary. <laughs> this display of sibling devotion goes back to an interview given during the week by Liverpool goalkeeper Larius Car- uh, Carius in the Daily Mail. So Carius went ahead with this chat with Ian Ladyman even though it came in a sticky time for him. When, when you're booked to do a one-on-one interview that you know a lot of people are going to read as a footballer, ideally you want to be the hero of the previous game and you can eh, devote a lot of time to that and, and bask in the plot. It's, Correus knew this wasn't going to be the case but he was able to he went through it anyway so he talked about the mistake accepted that it was his fault and then addressed the criticism that he'd taken from Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville in the Sky Studios. Carragher was here at Liverpool for a long time so maybe after the game he was a bit frustrated. He's probably still a supporter I have to accept it and I don't care what Gary Neville said he was a top player then he was a manager for a short bit and now he is back to being an expert again. Uh, but he's always very critical. I think he does it to everyone. I just hope that when I do well, he will comment on that. We will see in the future. So I would have thought, fair enough. You, you fight your corner. Somebody criticises you and you have every right to have a go back. Yeah, a bit of a dig, sure. Fair enough. But uh, this is did, did not go down very well with Phil on Match of the Day last night. Here's what Phil Neville feels, a young player who's making mistakes, should be doing with his time.
1: You do your training, you do your practice, you work as hard as you possibly can, you play on a Saturday and you say nothing to no one until you've got a couple of seasons under your belt and then you can come out and start shouting your mouth off or having a go at pundits. And that's where I think he's made the biggest mistake. Keep your mouth shut, do your job, go home, have your tea and play football.
2: Go home, have your tea, shut your mouth, play football. Don't slag my brother, play football, don't slag my brother, shut your mouth, says Phil Neville.
3: It sounds to me as though Loris Carius pranged a nerve there. He really has. He's really gotten stuck into the Devils. I mean, Gary Neville had a pop at him on Instagram, you know? Hey. Um, before the West Ham game. Oh, so you going to come at me, Carius? What, what did he, he write on Instagram? He said, Oh, sorry, Carius. You're right. Um, you know, what did, he, what did he say? My sincere apologies, Carius says Neville. Maybe not that sincere. You're right. A failed manager hasn't a clue. I won't copy your great fan, pundit, and club legend again. And then a quote from, he's, he's screen grabs a quote from Jamie Carger saying, I've, I've seen nothing from this guy to suggest he's good enough in his eight games, says Jamie Carger, a man who maybe wouldn't be one of the world's foremost authorities on sample size. You know, how does sample size affect, uh, you know, statistical uh, judgment? Uh, but Carius never actually described Gary Neville as a failed manager. Um, he simply said he'd been a manager for a short time and now he's an expert again.
2: He's back to being an expert again.
3: Yeah. That was how that was it that, came out. But Gary Neville says a failed manager. I don't know. I think maybe Carius needs to take a leaf out of Time's person of the year, Donald Trump, uh, and just pursue Gary Neville relentlessly from this point on. Failed manager Gary Neville, who, by the way, <laughs> is highly overrated, is on television again, criticising, you know, uh, you weren't so great in your time at Valencia, where are you going? Just continually repeat the same point. Your punditry has been a little bit lacklustre since you came back. Let's be honest, Gary. It's as though you're, 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 you've, you've, there's just been something a little crestfallen about you since your failed stint <laughs> at uh, Valencia. Um I mean, uh, you know, not that I would suggest that that would be a nice way to go, I think. It certainly wouldn't, but it could work. Let's report on sport. I don't think you need to really even think of anything else. Failed manager Gary Neville is literally all you need. Lionhead, Little Marco, failed manager Gary Neville. Uh, I mean, what else does Carrius ever need to say? Uh, evidently, uh, these pundits are ne- never going to be on his side, so I think he might as well actually... Start having a go back. Well, he's got to have a go at two of them, though. He's got Phil on his case now as well. Three of them, four of them, if you include well, nebbles, I mean, if you three. include uh, Jamie Redknapp as well. Yeah, Redknapp who was tagging along uh, with Jamie Carragher, who um, who gave Carrius another damn good thrashing. I mean, I thought Carragher was was really being quite unfair. Another
2: damn good thrashing after the West Ham game yesterday,
3: uh, during and after. Yeah, um, he also told him to shut his shut his mouth. Uh, So there was a few, there was a few, uh, so basically what happened? Liverpool goalkeeper Loris Kingslayer Carius spoons another one into the net uh, as a result of, well, Dimitri Payet being pretty good at free kicks. Now, Jimmy Cargill says he didn't even hit that hard. Dimitri Payet is kind of a wicked striker of a dead ball, I'd say. You know, a kind of an awkwardly spinning, bouncing ball. It's not that easy to stop. McHarris probably should have stopped it. I thought his his starting position was too far over to one side. You know, he's he was kind of it's 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 a fairly orthodox goalkeeper positioning. Okay, the wall covers that side of the goal, I'm gonna cover this side. It is Dimitri Payet, though. The wall is not a, it's not a problem for him. It's not really a factor. He has no, but look how he got the ball over the wall and look how low it was by the time it got to the goal. And so it's on the ground. You know that's that's how easy it is for Piatt to dip a ball over a wall like that. So you can't really give him, you know, in, invite him to go to. The, now the other thing about Piatt is that he is unique among Premier League players in his capacity to also smash the ball into the near the, the goalkeepers near side. And he did that last season. You know to punish goalkeepers who who try and get a bit too clever with their positioning. I do think Caris maybe was a bit out of out of position. Probably should have stopped the shot. To say, though, that it was an easy shot to stop, not not so sure about that. I don't think it was really that easy to stop. Second one is a one-on-one where he got exposed by a a deflection on the ball through, which prevented the the defender, um, Mantip from cutting out a ball he probably would have... He was expecting to be able to cut out, and suddenly it's diverted, and he's caught. The goalkeeper's caught. And again, it was poor. Darren Randolph threw one in at the other end. Uh, Yeah, but did you see that save afterwards? Exactly. This is the thing, Darren Randolph. First of all, he he uh, did a kind of Lewis Suarez. I remember Louis Suarez against Crystal Palace, pulling the head down, turtle like into his shirt. He did that as an elaborate display of his shame at the at the final whistle, to show the West West Ham fans that he felt responsible for throwing away what would have been a, a win at Anfield. Um, but the point that Jamie Carragher made was that he he helped to, he redeemed himself by making a great save from Jordan Henderson. The other team has to have a shot, in order for that to happen. You know, it's 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 difficult to redeem yourself by saving. By the way, a thirty-five yard shot, which, you know, if you if you get beaten, then it's then ah, that
2: was a great save though, because he because he climbed high, Randolph, but also had the, it was a fingertip save, Ken. Mm. but there was a fair, there was still a fair, it wasn't nestling right in the top corner. I kind of felt like he had to get. A strong fingertip to it to actually nudge it up. But it was one of those ones that you often see a keeper get to, and it sort of hits off their hand and still goes in. So I, let's not let's not be slagging off Darren Randolph here. The keepers uh, are having a tough enough time as, as it is.
3: No, I'm not. I'm not. I have no interest in slagging <laughs> off Darren Randolph. He made he he uh, he made a mistake. Uh, I'd say um, I'd say Randolph might say it wasn't easy, but I should have caught it. I don't need anybody to tell me it was bad <laughs> because I know uh, that was what Loris Carrius told to Ian Ladyman, who was the Daily Mail journalist that he'd done the interview with, the scheduled interview that you alluded to, that so got Gary Neville's back up. <laughs> um, when he made this comment about Neville, uh, He, w- I quote, he was a top player, then he was a manager for a short bit, and now he's back to being an expert again. But he's always very critical. I think he does it to everyone. I just hope that when I do well, he will comment on that. We'll see it in the future. Um, Carrier took took that particular aspect of it on by saying, well, everyone talks about David De Gea, who, if you remember, was also... Gary Neville said he wasn't good enough to play for Manchester United after he, he um, spooned one in against Tottenham. If you remember the game, it was like December or January, heavy snow, and Tottenham attacking desperately in the last minute. High ball, floodlight, snow. De Gea didn't catch it, and Manchester United conceded, a I think, a late equalising goal. Neville said no this guy and uh, of course De turned out to, to Will Cargill said well this guy's 24 De was 20 23 and 21 are the correct ages but I suppose it sounds you know it sounds a bit better if you can you know what I mean the, the point is that you're talking about a guy who's actually only played his first few games of the league
2: yeah twi- the age isn't even the point you could be 30 if you're only playing your first few games you're judged accordingly
3: now this is not to say that you know, Loris Karius has has been brilliant or doesn't deserve criticism because clearly he's been poor and he has made mistakes and you are going to get criticized. You know, the the imbalance yesterday between Randolph and Karius, well, one of those players plays for Liverpool and, you know, Jamie Carragher is more interested in the Liverpool goalkeeper and he's going to be more critical. But I I feel this has kind of really gone to the next level now. Like There's like a little vendetta on social media between, you know, Shut your mouth, says, says Phil Neville and Jamie Carragher to, to this guy. Well, why should he? I mean, these guys aren't getting paid to to, to tweet stuff on social media about him. You know, having, having hammered him on television, then to then to go further on social media, put sarcastic posts up. And then today there's like an inquest between Gary Neville and, and Ian Ladyman. Ian Ladyman went on Twitter. Ian Ladyman might have been thinking, you know, uh, we did the, myself and Doris did the interview, a journalist he does an interview with a player, there's always a certain... There'll be a bit of an embarrassment. Not not embarrassment, but a bit of oh, awkwardness at the sense that, oh, this interview that I did to the player has caused a, no, of a lot of problems. yeah. On the one hand, you know, it's good if an interview blows up and gets a lot of attention. It's always good for the journalist. But, you know, if if you sort of got, got on well with the player, you did a good, good interview, and he now seems to be getting attacked on the basis of stuff he didn't really say in that in that ladyman is saying, he didn't attack Gary Neville. He was respectful of the achievements. He just said this thing. Neville is there saying, oh, you know, he was trying to be clever. Um, uh, he, he said he was having a diggy and being clever. Don't defend him. He's a big boy, uh, says Gary Neville. You know, you're kind of like... Don't
2: defend him. Why? Don't defend him. Why can't he be defended? You're attacking him. It's like defend. Neville wants to have this platform from which he can attack people and not have them have any way to apply. It's unbelievable.
3: It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's 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 a it's a, a strange type of situation. Uh, I'm, uh, did he not say this then? He then he then tweets you know a bit of this is the bit where um, the bit of the article where Kyrie said oh he's 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 very critical. He does that to everybody. I'm not overly critical of players at all. I'm pretty fair. Is Gary Neville's self assessment? And I would agree, he is very fair to a lot of players. I wouldn't say to every player.
2: And when he wants to take somebody down, he can be highly critical.
3: Yeah, well, Carragher is now in the position of, of calling for the return of Seaman Mignolet, um, which, you know, I mean, I suppose... Was he not hammering him, too? Of course he was, yeah. <laughs> of course he was. <laughs> but that was a long time ago. He would be a
2: goalkeeper again. A at, lot Liverpool, of, at Liverpool, anyway.
3: A lot of seconds have a loss. So a lot of seconds, <laughs> days, minutes uh, have, have gone by since then, and, you know, Mignolet's uh, errors have been forgotten. I just feel, you know... Uh, it's too soon to to say about a guy. This is you know this is a guy who, in the Bundesliga, was regarded as one of their best goalkeepers. You know, a lot of the teams over there were interested in signing him. Has made a poor start, but is it necessarily the case that you say that not only you criticise on television, but then follow up like this tag teaming, even Jamie Redknapp joining in? Like, what does he know about goalkeeping? You know what I mean? How many? T- uh, what does Jamie Redknapp? What's his interest here? Well, what do any of them know about goalkeeping? Really? I thought he was just backing up his. Uh, the alpha male and that the alpha dog in that studio. Uh, but that's how it seemed to me. Champions uh, League draw has been made. The Champions League draw. Um, yes, and you might recall that Bayern, or at least one of their English language Twitter accounts, tweeted last week to Arsenal. So, at Arsenal, should we just book our travel to London right now? Uh, this is because Arsenal for once had finished top of their group Bayern had finished second but of course Arsenal are always unlucky in this draw and always get Bayern or Barcelona <laughs> and indeed they've got Bayern uh, so it's Bayern versus, <laughs> Bayern versus Arsenal it's just so miserable for, for them I mean maybe maybe this is the best possible way to break that run of only getting to the second round but obviously it's the it's the worst draw they could have gotten in another sense
2: you have to beat the best to go and win the competition
3: it's certainly if you're Arsenal you do
2: you have to repeatedly beat the best probably
3: um, the Sevilla uh, the Europa League holders against Leicester uh, PSG against Barcelona so not the greatest draw from, from Barcelona's point of view PSG tough enough opponents at this stage but Bar Leverkusen against Atletico Madrid um, in a match you you should imagine Atletico will will get through Porto against Juventus again you think Juventus probably managed that one Barney against Arsenal as I mentioned Benfica against Dortmund Real Madrid against Napoli, and Manchester City against Monaco. Um, so that is the um, that's the Champions League draw. If we have time, we'll also get some of the Europa League, uh, or the significant Europa League fixtures for the end of this show.
2: So Leicester City, in with a little shout there, maybe, of quarterfinal.
3: Severe good side. Yeah, not unbeatable. At though. least the last time I saw them in the Europa League final, they were very good. But uh, then again, a lot of the players who played for them that night no longer play for them. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's, you know, Leicester I mean they are f-
2: third place. You know, they're only a point behind Barcelona, <laughs> and yeah, we're in shouting distance of Real, Real. So I'd probably, I'll, I'll roll back there again. Yeah. They're rank outsiders, Leicester City against Leicester a strong, Sevilla team, but they have
3: a chance. They're definitely outsiders, but that doesn't—that's not to say that they that they can't do it. Um, I think they—I think they very well might. But but uh, where are we now? Uh, what, the other game yesterday, Manchester United against Tottenham. It was an interesting game. This is, you know, can we remember another really a, a, a sort of a classic um, Jose Mourinho type of victory at Manchester United? Before this was, this was um, the usual Jose. Before you know the sort of doubts of the last year, and um, this was the way that his teams win big matches. Which is to say, which is to say, clean sheet. They pounce on the mistake. When it happens, and uh, and of course the man who's been expertly man managed by Jose Mourinho, there is a bit of the old, you know, we've been starving him, beating him, singing off key, <laughs> you know, as as uh, Mkhitaryan bursts out of the blocks. You know, he's he's been kept back to this point of the season. The last few games he's played, you know, Fiorent, um, Zorya Luhansk, West Ham, he's been really good, and. Uh, He was the key player in this game Scored a brilliant goal um, Under Herrera once again very important player well, just
2: before you leave Mkhitaryan Ken Bill in Dublin has emailed in secondcaptains at mm-hmm. to say as a long time listener and someone who would necessarily listen to what Ken Early says about football I'd just like to make one point about Mkhitaryan although Mourinho's got a lot of criticism for not starting until recently it's not a trend with a lot of top foreign players coming to the Premier League they need time to acclimatise to the demands different training different tactics different intensity different refereeing tendencies different culture I just think in this instance Jose has managed him quite well uh, to keep him out of the thick of the action until he feels that he's fully ready. Although I don't agree with his public criticism of of him after the Manchester derby. I
3: don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, I can see how maybe it might look a bit like like that. I mean, didn't Arsene Wenger famously keep Robert Pirès on the bench and Pirès join Arsenal? And I think Arsenal's second game of the season maybe was up against Sunderland. Uh, unless I'm getting games mixed up, I think Patrick Vieira was sent off in this match. Um, Wenger kept Pirès on the bench. Said, look in, listen listen." Just watch what happens out there today. Maybe this isn't a game for you. Not yet, but watch what happens and try and get your head around. And Pires, you know, was watching growing steadily paler as this, you know, and, and Vieira obviously ended, ended up being maddened by whatever had happened in the game and got himself sent off, but he was shocked by what he saw. He said, really? This is what, this is what I'm going to have to deal with? These guys are trying to break our legs. Um, but, you know, Pires... Uh, Pierce did struggle actually a little bit in his first few months and only really got going the second half of that season. But he did play. It's, it's hard to see how a player is gonna acclimatize while he's not while he's playing, you know, with reserve team. Uh, as to adapting to new cultures, Henry McGuntarian speaks seven languages. I would be surprised if there's another player in the league that, that speaks that's, seven languages. Yeah, that's, that's
2: impressive.
3: He he has lived in so many different cultures. Um this is a guy who uh, has lived, has spent time living in Armenia, in Ukraine, in France, in Germany, in Brazil, and in England. Now, I doubt there is any player in the league better equipped to adapt to a new culture than Mkhitaryan.
2: So, what are the seven languages? Uh,
3: just Armenian, Russian, yeah. Ukrainian, yeah, German, French, Portuguese, and English. I'm amazed, Jose gives him no credit for speaking Portuguese. That's a good. That is a good spread. Yeah. Because he uh, and, and where did I learn this? zone? I have to admit, the Players Tribute. Oh, the much maligned by Ken Early Players Tribute. Well, maybe it's just that Henrik Mctarian is the best sports writer yet to write for the Players Tribute. Uh, he he actually did a really good piece uh, with them a little while ago, uh, a, few, a few days, maybe ten days, uh, where he was talking about his his upbringing. Was actually really good i mean it, you know his father was a football player uh and you know he's talking about as, he, as when i was a kid oh you know dad take me to training i don't want you to leave me uh you know when he's like five five years old sort of thing yeah the dad's like oh you know listen yeah i'll just i'm just going out to the garden hang on and then he'd go off to training and He's, oh he's left me behind you know but it, his dad was a football player kind of gave him the idea of wanting to be one. but his father died when he was really young you know five or six of a of a brain tumour uh, you know one of these sudden sort of sudden onset unexpected death at a very young the, the man would have been in his I guess early 30s you know when he died um which is a very sad moment, obviously for the family. Eric McIntyre at that stage was too young to really understand what this meant. You know, his his mother and sister would just say, "Look, you know, Daddy won't ever be with us again," kind of thing. And they were kind of they they then had a bit of a struggle financially. You know, their their existence had become much more precarious. Um, and he had to he was concentrating on the idea of being professional football from ve- from very young. You know, and and uh, you know, his mother sort of was encouraging him. You know, he 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 apparently a lot of times like, oh, man, I can't do this, I can't. And she's like, no, no, you can do it, you can do it. And you know, he went off as a kid was in Brazil for a while. This is how he speaks Portuguese. He he went to Brazil to like train for a few months. Um, you know, he's which, which you imagine you're 15 or whatever. That's you know, actually go to Brazil for six months when you're 15 and you're from Armenia. You know, it's 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 kind of. Uh, what I'm saying is, this joining Manchester United as a millionaire, mm-hmm. as a as a as a senior uh, professional and millionaire in his you know mid to late twenties, is not the biggest hurdle he's ever had to get over. I don't think Jose Mourinho deserves any credit for the fact that he's finally showing he's a good player because he gets the chance to do that because he's in the team. I'm 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 not going to say this is thanks to Jose Mourinho's magic work. Fear one. not, Ken. Don't
2: worry. I think Bale in Dublin is suitably chastened. It's he, he now feels like. Toby's Carias after a uh, grilling from one of the Nevils. Did you call him Toby oh, Carias? What did I call him? Tobias, did I? Loris. <laughs> Loris, I should say.
3: Loris Car- Carias. Um but yeah, um actually La- uh, Hugo Laris, the other the other one yeah. in the Premier League was hailed as the man of the match again. Of course, it was Manchester United home game. Of course, the opposing goalkeeper was man of the match. Um said uh, Jose Mourinho but uh, they did manage to win. He, he had bigged up Tottenham before this game, he Usually said they're the best team in the league. I know, have, have you seen the league? The best team in the league is your old team. Although, you know, he doesn't want to talk about that. But there's a few teams between Tottenham and, and the top. The idea that Tottenham are the most complete team in the league is, is laughable. You know, as we saw yesterday, they're a solid team who are tough to beat. Yep. And they don't score enough goals. And that's something that they're going to have to try and sort out. And certainly when you, when they're trailing against a, a team, you know, a Jose Mourinho team, um, they don't have enough uh, variation in their attacking play to, to have any confidence of getting past the defence, you know. So ultimately it didn't. And it was one of those games where I think you could tell from a long way out, or it looked from a long way before the final whistle that it was going to end the way that it ended. Um you know, maybe he's we could have got a penalty or deflection, but it was difficult to see any other yeah, way they we were going to score. Uh, as
2: you said in your column today, they have one way of playing.
3: Which is maximum speed. Maximum speed,
2: relentless intensity. And when that doesn't work, there's not much to fall back on.
3: More intensity, more aggression. That's, you know, we've, we've spoken about Pochettino a few times. So they, they need to, I mean, part of it has to do with the players. Although, you know, you see someone like Deli Ali, and Deli alley has got obviously a huge amount of ability. Um, but is at a stage of his career where he will benefit from coaching you know there's there's a lot of potential there which could remain unexplored you know he'll develop along certain lines as a player and Pochettino I think is encouraging him to be a real um, to play really quick which is I think generally good to hit early passes as early as possible passes and those I think that's a good fit for the way this Pochettino team plays but there are you know, there's other things which I think are being neglected. I mean, the, sometimes you can create the space by not doing something as quickly as you can do it. Because it, Dele Alley I get the impression, the defender kind of knows what he's going to do now. Because it's like, Dele Alley will, of course, try to pass this at the latest on his second touch of the ball. You know, he's going to try and make the early pass. He's going to try and hit. And it's not surprising to anyone. Mm. And it's, it's a little bit too easy to read. Um, he needs to mix it up a bit, I think. But hopefully, he'll start to, uh, you know, start to do that a bit more. Check one more
2: important sports story.
3: Well, we should, um, I suppose, mention Con- <laughs> Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea could be deducted points, and that would be a way to shake things up a bit. If um, if the FA decide to dock some points off Chelsea for their part in the brawl against Manchester City which I find pretty funny. I mean, Conte describes it as a joke, and I agree. It is funny uh, that Chelsea could get uh, docked points for that, but it has to do with their record. Their record is is quite poor. They've had a number of of such incidents in the past. Uh, Conte's saying, for me, if you're involved in a situation where you're not at fault, why must you pay? Why? I don't understand this. At the end of the Manchester City game, my players tried to keep their cab. Well, they also, a couple of them, attempted to provoke, uh, successfully provoke Manchester City players, more Manchester City players, that are getting sent off. That's the case for Cesc Fabregas. It will be a joke. Uh, You must be honest and understand which team is at fault. Um, We had a bad record in the past, but now we are different. I don't know what happened in the past, Antonio Conte. I do hope this happens if for no other reason than we get to see an Antonio Conte reacts to points docking press conference. He has done a couple of these press conferences at times when he has come into oh right when when the law has tried to uh, collar him for you know one thing or one thing or another and he usually reacts by hitting back quite spectacularly so you know let's he, let's hope this one uh, runs on a little he's bit.
2: taken the short view here though I think how do you mean well if Conte wants to look a little bit further than their league points total in December. A Chelsea team with a cause, Ken. A Chelsea team. We know what Chelsea are like when they've got the siege mentality going on. Oh, yeah. And what more? You wouldn't want six points deducted, but I presume something like that anyway. It would be two maximum, maybe one. Take a one-point deduction. Be, it couldn't be more than one. Take a one-point deduction, but Antonio, and then convince everybody with all this evidence you have that the world is against you
3: yeah. and you're going to go and romp
2: the league with 14 points. That one point won't matter, Dan.
3: Yeah, it would just be handcuffed celebrations <laughs> all the way to the end of the season <laughs> from from uh, Chelsea. One point isn't going to make a difference the way they're playing. And that's
2: it for Kennedy's report on sport. John Bruin was at the King Power Stadium, John, to see Leicester City roaring back to something like last season's form and Jamie Vardy ending a 16-match... Gold drought uh, by scoring a hat-trick. Not a bad way to break the duck.
1: No, and um, he, 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 I've seen quite a bit of Leicester over the last few weeks, and he's looked a very different player to uh, that of last season. Well, until Saturday, that is. Um, now, Jamie Vardy never looks happy with life, really, when he's playing football, does he? There's always that rage boiling over. But when I've seen him recently, this sort of simmering rage. Now, one of the things that Claudio Ranieri did in that game um, was to, when I've seen Vardy play recently, he played in, he's played he been playing in a sort of inside left position and looking a bit annoyed by that. And against Manchester City, Claudio Ranieri, the tinker man himself, made this little switch, which meant that he was pushed further to the right of uh, the forward line and came up against Alexander Kolorov mm. <laughs> and made absolute hay against him. And, That first goal um, That's the time of chance That he's been missing This season Once that went in You could just see Jeremy Vardy Flushed with His former self The player we saw last season uh, and I do, I do wonder. Well, you do have to wonder, of course, though, whether Manchester City rather let him be himself once more.
2: Yeah, there was probably a little bit of that, all right. It is the great, one of the all time great footballing cliches, uh, I guess, John, that a striker just needs one. Well, normally one needs to go in off his arse, as they say, but in this case, he actually just slammed it into the bottom corner. And after that, like you say, he just became the, the Jamie Vardy of last season. The finishes for all three goals, really, were. If you hadn't seen Jamie Vardy play this season, you would just assume that he was doing this every week.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I think we should also mention at this point uh, Riyad Mahrez as well, another player who pretty much disappeared since then. I think that, I mean, uh, for Vardy's second goal, that that unbelievably delicate assist Mm. that he provided for that, that's the first time he supplied an assist to Vardy this season. Again, that may well be because Vardy has moved over towards Mahrez's flank, but again, Mares looked like the player of last season. Um, I, I was before the match I was flicking through some old stuff and remembered that uh, Ranieri called Mares his road runner less, about this time last year actually and I was thinking that Mares hadn't really done that much running um, at all when I've seen Leicester. but yet again a, a player who looked like himself or the player of last season. Um, and hopefully, I mean, just because you know, they're a thrilling team to to watch, it looks like Leicester could be back and uh, causing problems along the way.
3: Yeah, do you think, um, you mentioned, John, that uh, maybe Manchester City had made it a bit easy for Leicester in some ways. I was talking about this during the game with a friend. He said, this must be the first time Leicester have played against the high-line defence since about January. Mm. Yeah, nobody does this against them anymore. Uh, so... What, what were Manchester City thinking of? They played against Leicester in the... It's no surprise that we saw this the uh, old Leicester when City played against them in a way that was calculated to, to make them look great.
1: Yes, I mean, <laughs> Pep Guardiola talked after the game about how he wants his team to go forward all the time and all that type of thing. Uh, and that seems to be his philosophy. Um, among the many interesting things he said during that press conference, one of them was... I feel what I feel which um, for, for me if I read into that statement what, what I think about that is that this is, Pep Guardiola is the guy who you know doesn't eat for a week as he prepares for a match stays up all night composing these complex stratagems but somehow he didn't appear to this week to have watched a Leicester City video from the last 18 months or so of a team that plays on the counter has Two or three very quick forwards and um, if you play a high line, if you play, actually if you play a deep line against them, then they're going to struggle to score against you. But Pep decided that that wouldn't be the way to, to play against Manchester City. He knew best um, and uh, he was proved wrong in, in that actually.
3: He, he said he said a lot of interesting things. I mean, one of the things I saw he said was, um, what is tackling? I'm not a coach for tackling. I couldn't honestly think of a single statement more calculated to wind up all of the people who hate Pep Guardiola simply because of who he is. You know, to begin with, if Pep Guardiola arrives, oh, look at this genius comes here from Europe. Oh, you know, he thinks he's done well in Spain and Germany. Well, you're in real man's football now. And then Pep Guardiola stands there and says something like, what is tackling? I'm not a coach for tackling. I honestly couldn't think of any redder meat that he could have thrown to the wolves who are who are slavering for his blood.
1: So you think he was being provocative in saying that?
3: Well, I I don't know. I I can't imagine he was intentionally being provocative. Why would he do that? I mean, it it it, it just seems like a a pointless thing. To, he doesn't need to provoke people who are or, who already want to see him fail. I honestly believe that the. The the notion of this of the great genius Guardiola, as Robbie Savage kept sarcastically referring to, he's supposed to be a genius. Uh, This great genius comes to English football and can't crack it. That idea is so precious to a certain kind of dare I say it Englishman that Guardiola does not need to wind these people up anymore. You know they're already looking out for uh, any little slips.
1: Well, well, Robbie Savage is Welsh, but yeah, he is a traditional football. Englishman man. In, in the in the proper sense mm. but um yes well I, I think that, that that press conference was you know I, I can't remember a press conference well, actually but there's one other at Leicester of course when Nigel Pearson went bonkers where you've seen so much discussion of what was said afterwards where there was sort of laughter and did he really say that and all this type of discussion um The problem is that currently against the English football man values of hard work, the counter-attack, the long ball, um, this thing of the second ball, which I've noticed that Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp actually have started talking about, um, they they, they don't seem to compute it. Someone someone made quite a good comparison to me at the time, which was his post-match press conference uh and, and mentions of things like processes reminded us of the dark days of louis van hal that sort of uh you know technocratic uh european idea of you know eventually you're going to see how my complicated system will work and then we will sweep all before us which was essentially what van hal would say every week until things started going very badly wrong for him and pep guardiola held holds a similar sort of Standing when he's talking in these press conferences, you know, his tunnel vision, his uh, so his ideologue approach to being a football manager, rather jars in the medium of a, a post-match press conference in England, and especially so when your team has been beaten by a team that played very simply on the counter. Uh, you played three at the back uh, with where two of your defenders, uh, two of your central defenders, were Bakary Sagna and the disastrous Alexander Kolorov. And he also played Pablo Zabaleta in midfield. Or we think that he played Pablo Zabaleta in midfield because actually it was very difficult to work out what formation you were playing at all. But whatever the formation was, it fell apart completely. And then, of course, uh, he's the the manager who continues to persist with the goalkeeper who cannot make a save. Well, I say he can't make a save, but um, I think he made two saves during that game. He's faced... The statistic is he's faced ten shots on target and he's letting seven goals. But at this point, Pep Guardiola thinks he knows best. Now he may well probably knows best, but the results suggest that he doesn't at the moment.
2: Yeah, from what I say, he seems to be getting more. Bravo seems to be getting more criticism for the, wasn't the Andy King goal that was curled away from him, but within his reach. I I, I thought the last wasn't Vardy's third goal when Vardy, Vardy kind of swooped at the ball was particularly poor goalkeeping because. There were there weren't many. There were no options for Vardy. All he could do was take it around the goalkeeper from where he was, and then try to slot it in from an acute angle. And yet Bravo just sort of sat there and let him take really it. Around played it like, yeah. He played along
3: with it. Like he sort
2: of played along. with It's like oh, this is the only thing you can do. I'm gonna I'm gonna show you the wing here. If <laughs> you're gonna be able to <laughs> knock it in from the wing, it it doesn't seem very. It doesn't seem very sure of himself in terms of how he keeps goal.
1: No, I mean, I wrote a piece last week about him and. Uh, carriers, you know, two goalkeepers that are under, under pressure. Spoke to a couple of goalkeeping experts and one of the things is, again, again we go back to Pep Guardiola's tunnel vision, is that he bought Claudio Bravo to be the, well, what we know as the sweeper-keeper. Um, but actually, at Barcelona, from from what I'm told, he wasn't really a sweeper-keeper and wasn't actually that good with the ball at his feet. He was known as a great shot stopper, a a reflex goalkeeper. But the view is that because Pep has scrambled his mind with all this talk of playing the ball out and all the rest of it, uh, he's forgotten how to be a goalkeeper and isn't working on the rest of the basics of his game, which a goalkeeper needs to rigorously practice all the time to keep their reflex sharp. And he's completely... Well, he's he's unable to make a save in the classic sense. I mean, that... As you, as you said Owen I mean the way that Vardy took the ball around him the, you know the path of least resistance was offered to Vardy just slot it in there you go thank you
3: which which kind of feeds into the, the the real question I mean obviously at the moment Pep Cordial is getting plenty of criticism in the media and people are saying oh he doesn't look so clever now it, you know institutionally he seems to be on a pretty solid footing because the kind of hierarchy of the club have invested a lot of time in getting him there and I'm sure you know, they're absolutely going to back him um, for, you know, the foreseeable future and beyond. You know what I mean? It would be crazy for them not to do that. I'm sure he's got their backing for... for As long as he wants it, we'll be saying it lot, But for a long time. Um, the the thing that's really going to make the difference is what his players think about him. And I mean, it's like what you're saying about Bravo. You know, if Bravo is kind of being asked to do something he doesn't even do, you mentioned Zabaletta. I guess what Zabaleta was, was doing was, you know, Guardiola has this idea... Um, you play 3-2 in defence. So you got your three sort of central defenders and then you get your two uh, wing-backs to sort of slot into inside positions ahead of the defence and they're going to cut out the uh, counter through
1: the half-space, right? Yeah, yeah, I just have a... Wasn't, 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 wasn't the other wing-back Kevin De Bruyne?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> so. this, this is the strange thing. But, you know, from, from Zabaleta's point of view, I, I'm just thinking Zabaleta is kind of like, really, you want me to... Do what exactly? I've been, I've played a right back my whole career. You know, maybe if Zabaleta was, um, you know, uh, 19 or 20, he might be more amenable to this. I know Philip Lamb did it, but, you know, I don't think Philip Lamb ever even really looked that happy doing it. You know, if if you're asking players to do things which they feel make, make them look bad, then you know, like Kolarov at centre-half, he doesn't really look equipped to do it, then it doesn't take long for them to sort of start bitching to each other and saying, this is nonsense, this is crazy, like why are we, why is this, and that's that's when everything really starts to come apart. I mean, how how close is he to, see to uh, something like that happening?
1: I think, I think is. I, th- I think, obviously, footballers will talk between them. Um, again, you make the comparison with Van Hal. I mean, th- those type of stories about players being, Dissatisfying didn't take that long to appear, um, but then again, Van Hal was sort of implanted into a club where a lot of the players have been there for a long time. Um, having said that, I suppose the same is true of Guardiola, where um, you know the, the the Yaya Torres and the Joe Hearts have been shunted to one side. Hart in particular, um, it, it, it's almost as if he has to build the team with his own players. I think the problem they've got as well, if you you look at that, is the players that they've bought, not a particularly convincing bunch from the summer so far, is there? I mean, one player, Leroy Sané. I mean, what's happened to him? I mean, I know he's played the odd game, but really he's made no impression. Gundogan is a good player. I think the most successful. Someone like John Stones, again, a player taken completely out of his comfort zone by Pep Guardiola. And yeah, players talk to each other. They eventually become dissatisfied if they're, they're all being asked to do things they don't like. And that's when the rumbling of discontent starts between them, which eventually escapes into the media. Uh, it'd be difficult to predict when when that might happen, because I think of all clubs actually in the Premier League, Manchester City is the tightest ship with things like that. Very, very rigorous media operation there. Um, and, you know, very difficult to, to get to speak to Manchester City players quite a lot of the time. Um but yeah, I mean, there are, there are problems there. And you know, if we look at Pep Guardiola's career as a whole, is this the greatest crisis of his career? Maybe there's that 2011-12 season when he was up against Jose Mourinho. But this is a real test of him. And um, beyond the you know the, the, the complex tactical stuff, there's a point where he has to become a, a man manager in the English football man sense of Alex Ferguson's and so on. Um, another
2: another non English English football man, Alex. Rourke. Well, yeah,
1: we, we, uh, <laughs> we, we're a broad church. Yeah, exactly, here, you know. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Claudio Ranieri. You see? There's yeah. an yeah. English football man. Yeah, I yeah. think
3: Conte might be one as well. Conte actually. is yes, a quintessential indeed, yeah. English
0: football man. Absolutely, listen, John,
2: brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers, lads. I can see, Ken, that you're particularly sensitive about what real football men think at the moment, and I guess who could blame you?
1: You mentioned Canelli. I wouldn't necessarily. Agree with Anthony Ken early says about football.
2: (laughs) But Pep is under. That's an Irish football man, Ken. An Irish football man who's. A lot of his his initial growth as a football man was in Ireland. Obviously informed by English influences for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Great football man, nonetheless. But Pep Guardiola is under a little bit of pressure, isn't he? He's getting a little bit. John made a couple of comments there about how he was in his press conference and some yeah. of the stuff he was saying, even in interviews after games see none of us had ever seen, but he's always he's always speaking in other languages, so we've just had a relentless barrage of Pep Guardiola interviews for the last couple of months mm. in english, and well particularly for the last few weeks they've always been after bad results he's mm. kind of he just comes across he's he's fine he's not as managers go he's he's not the you know he's he retains enough decorum that you couldn't accuse him of being rude. Oh, no. But he seems right, like...
3: You, you could accuse him of being a little bit rude. It's it's a coldness. And,
2: and aloo- I was going to say a little bit aloof or something. Like this. You can see he's eyeing up the questionnaire with disdain. You know, mm. the, the, whatever you ask me is going to be just bullshit, mm. is what he's
3: thinking.
2: Well, he, is, but he never quite says it.
3: Is, it. is it more frustrating to deal with critics who are making good points and, you know, ma- making kind of challenging you in a way where you're like, wow, maybe I am wrong. Or to deal with critics who don't seem to understand what they're doing and are just lobbing stupid points at you. You you remain convinced of your own rightness, but frustrated by the fact that you're being questioned by these Lilliputians, which is worse. Oh, there's
2: no doubt it's worse to be grilled by somebody who
3: knows really. Knows what they're talking what about. They're talking oh, about, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I guess Pep probably doesn't think that's happened so far. Uh, he's only had to deal with the second type of yeah. situation. But you know... I saw him in this... He's, he's definitely been dispensing more congratulations than he ever thought he'd be doing. You know, it was congratulation, Leicester, once again, just as it was congratulations, Chelsea, last week. Uh, and four wins in 15 matches mean a lot of teams, Celtic and, and whatnot, have been congratulated by Guardiola. Um, but the tackle bit was, was quite interesting. I mean, it was his press conference was about 10 minutes, which is longer than the post-match press conferences usually are. I'm sure... They're gonna come down in length over over the coming months, as Guardiola realizes. Hang on, most people just do five. But he did he did 10, and the tackle thing came up, you know, it was something like you haven't made a tackle in the first 35 minutes, uh, or something along those lines. And they were, were 3 0 down, you know, it was it was bad. And Guardiola really looked very contemptuous. It was kind of like tackles, like what is tackles? I'm not a coach for tackles, you know. I want to play good. We want to. We want have the ball. We want to arrive many times. We want to arrive many times. Tackles, tackles. Like we're not good. Tackles is going to make the difference between us winning and losing. Talk to
2: me about tackles.
3: Tackles, exactly. And and the the disdain was obvious. You know, this sort of. Uh, but what tackles means is an attitude. Mm. They're not really talking about. I mean, how many tackles do you have in a game? Not that many, you know. Not really. It's it's an attitude, though. It's a kind of. Uh, uh, a refusal to be, and a, a kind of a, an aggression. What what Mourinho M- M- Pochettino prizes, you know, the the sort of refusal to be intimidated. Well, particularly it's the Stephen physically. Gerard uh, point, isn't it? That when
2: he talked about tackles, wasn't it in his book about the art of tackling? Yeah, and how essentially to him it was the be all and end of all of football to go crunching into people for a long period. I time. always
3: thought there was a bit of posturing in in that from from Jared. I didn't Maybe. think he really got it. Actually, I thought I thought first of all his description of tackling was was ridiculous. Like, it, it's not a tackle unless you slide at least eight metres on your arse. That's not a, you know, it's, uh, there was just a sort of, there was a macho po- posturing fakeness about that, I thought. you know, a good tackler doesn't have to struggle. Slide himself. a lot of the time. Exactly. Um, I mean, what Guardiola is talking about, Shabby Alonso talked about it, we've mentioned it a few times, oh, we see it as a, it's a recurso, like a recourse, like something that you have recourse to, if you have to, if you have to, you have to tackle a player. Um... It's not something you really want to be doing, because what you want to be doing is having the ball, passing it, building the game. If they've got the ball, sometimes you have to tackle them, sure. I just think this is, I'll answer you saying, I just don't see it as being one of the main parts of the game. It's something that I have to do sometimes. But he was being a lot more diplomatic.
2: It's also easy to say that when you're as good as him. Yeah. Some players have to, a lot of their game has to centre around tackling.
3: Yeah. um, Not players... uh, Not the kind of players Pep Guardiola likes to have in his team. But you know, they they literally conceded from the thing that we were talking about last week where Bravo and Stones are playing the ball to each other. They literally conceded a goal from that. It's almost as though Jamie Vardy had been watching what they do. And it's like, oh, John Stones has got the ball out by the corner flag. Where do I think this pass is going to go? And Jamie Vardy was uh, was proved correct.
2: Our Chelsea's win against West Brom was their ninth in a row and you're starting to see mentions of Arsenal's Premier League record of 14 league victories in a row. Premier League victories kind of getting dropped into uh, the into match reports at this point. Miguel Delaney is ready to chat about this one. Miguel, I suppose this win was, if anything, the least pretty of the nine wins in a row, but I guess that doesn't really matter.
4: Yeah, it was the one probably where they struggled the most and where it didn't really look on. And in some ways I think that's actually uh, more ominous for everyone else because the big thing with this Chelsea team so far since they've gone in this run, is that Conte has clearly worked out a system, and everyone's had a problem, you know, countering this system. And for mo- most of those games, it's just as if they've got they've had the other side completely figured out, and they, they've won as kind of you know a consequence of, of how they kind of how, how they press, how the team is arranged. Whereas this time, they just couldn't get beyond uh, West Brom. Yet when that failed, they still had the players, in this case Diego Costa, to offer so a, an individual moment to take them out of it. And I think, and because I think, for the for the well, for the next few for the next while, I still expect them to kind of you know to play in this way, but to have this extra option as well means you know that they've got a few ways of winning games now.
3: Yeah, it's it's an amazing transformation.
4: What's yeah, happened? What's happened with this it's team? A,
3: it's incredible. Really, I mean, mean it's it's, it's we're coming up to a year since uh, Mourinho was sacked. Team was in complete meltdown. Eden Hazard had just completely, you know, he he is taking a year off. Diego Costa, you know, looked like he was he was definitely going to have to be sold. There was nothing good about this team, and here they are, record breaking.
2: Ah, that's perfect for a manager, though, isn't it? A manager of Conte's stature coming into a team that <laughs> clearly has a load of brilliant players, hmm. but just that they're all, for whatever reason, have fallen out of love with their previous manager. <laughs>
4: well, I I, th- I see. There's been a lot of debate about that, but particularly I think for how you know, Mourinho started with United. Over who who's had the kind of the bigger task? I, I, to be honest, in the summer I thought Conte had the toughest job of all. Beyond the fact that that was, a, I mean, it was a squad obviously that had suffered one of the worst collapses of, of any champion in the kind of in the post-war era. Um A lot of players wanted to leave. It just looked down. Even the entire squad wasn't really suited to him. And then even in the window. He got none of his first choice targets. In goal, like N'Golo Kante's obviously been again one of the players of the season. But he was Conte's. He was he was a Chelsea target rather than a Kante, a Kante target, because um, he initially wanted nine in off Roma. Now, obviously, I, I think he was still kind of he, he wasn't exactly going to happy with with signing uh, with signing Kante, But it was still uh, nine he wanted. And then they had that mess towards the end of the window beyond beyond Kante, They couldn't they couldn't really get any anyone else. They they, they were really targeting ultimately having to go, to go back to the weeks. But he's been one of their, probably, four most important players. Um, and even, obviously, like in not, in not getting those players, it took him a little bit to kind of adjust to the team. He was, trying, he was trying to put in a system that worked. They did look ropey for those first few games, despite a few flashes. But to go from that to the way everything suddenly just fitting together, I mean, that's the most impressive of all, the way he's kind of just adapted to the situation. And not just adapted, but absolutely excelled in it.
3: Well, I'm glad that you mentioned David Luiz, um, Miguel, so that I didn't have to mention him. Oh no! <laughs> um, I mean, when we speak about Chelsea, we sp- we speak about David Luiz. You certainly do. Well, we—I think everybody does. I he's—he's he's kind of become the iconic player of the city. I mean, he is the. Would be going too far to say, captain, leader. He's not actually the captain. Captain, <laughs> leader, legend of Chelsea Football captain Club. Club. Yeah, legend, absolutely. Go, going forward, what do you think?
4: Uh, well, to be honest, like I think he's one of four players. that just ensures this team has perfect balance. And even though Conte didn't want, it was a no four or five centre centre-halves. Where so is this? Come, where is
3: this coming from? Conte didn't want him. I'm, 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 I'm going to give Conte credit for knowing a good defender when he sees one.
4: Well, <laughs> the, the very fact that he was, you know, if they resorted to him on the last day of the window. Suddenly, you know, well, we can't a half here. Let's let's go back to the old reliable. But um, I mean, yeah, because you, you want you want the Kula he won Maxim, the other side of the half of Torino. Um, there, yeah, there, there's a few options they were looking at, even Benucci as well, but he, he won't stay in Italy. So there were a few options they were looking at first. But it's just, I mean, he actually he's struggled in a similar role with, with PSG, Luis. But back in this system, it's not just that he has the kind of ability to take the ball out of the fence and you know, play high in the way Conte wants, it's also that he's strong enough. to to handle one-on-ones in the way, say, that Guardiola's defenders aren't. Because, all right, it's obviously not an identical system, but they actually kind of want similar things from the defenders, Conte and Guardiola. But at the moment, uh, Conte has a a lovely balance. And even if you look at, beyond Luis, to one of the guys beside him, Gary Cale, Cale looked like his, his career at the top level might be coming to an end in that Arsenal game and that Liverpool game. He made, you know, horrible errors in both. But within... A game or two of switching from that Arsenal match, they um, Kale now, now looks very solid as as quite a beside him. Um, and yeah, it, it's just the, the balance right right across that team is something else.
2: The only uh, flying equipment the, the moment might be this potential of a points deduction, Miguel, for failing to control their players, and that fracas against Manchester City now Antonio Conte says this is a joke that this is even being considered he says our guys were essentially sinned against and managed to keep their heads seems the problem lies not so much in this individual incident this particular game but the fact that Chelsea under Mourinho were charged with this kind of thing quite a lot and, and Conte might Actually, suffer the consequences of that. Do you think it's actually realistic? Do you think points might be deducted? they pretty
4: sanctioned. I doubt it. No pretty fine, I doubt it would go as far as a, as a points deduction. Um, it would be, you know, for, for Conte exceptionally harsh. Although maybe for the rest of us, uh, good for the good for the league because uh, there is a danger now that they could be out of sight. So, I mean, talking about that record, like the, the record for one unbroken run. So, as in not over a summer, hmm. is. Also, Arsenal—it's—it's it's thirteen, but then they w- they won a 14th game at the start of the of the very next season, and then Chelsea just four off that, and then the next four games are are pretty forgiving up until they play Spurs, which I think is either the thirteenth or fourteenth game. Uh, that's, Although maybe that's another debate at the
3: moment. Something always goes <laughs> wrong. That's why these yeah you know, these runs always come to an yeah. end. It's it's kind something's going to go wrong for them. But I mean, for the moment, everything's going right. It looks as though maybe everyone else is going to need a points deduction just to keep things interesting for the next <laughs> few months and i have to say I'm, i've misjudged antonio Conte. but i didn't expect this type of instant success from him
4: yeah um, well this thing as well i mean even when we were saying there about this this squad the situation he came into i mean it, it wasn't just you know what happened last season first of all he came in a lot of those players you know there were, there were a fair few of them interested in leaving one of them beyond anyone else was you know the uh the match breaker yesterday and diego costa you know, just before the season started, Conte was was already talking about you know Costa's uh, physical shape, how he needs to improve, how he needs to get with the program. You know, even specifically talking about things things he has to do with his game. And at that point in mid August, there were a lot of more murmurs about how uh, the Chelsea players still weren't at taking what was happening, and it looked like it could. At that point, it looked like it could be an A V B situation. And then I think, okay, they got a few wins to start to start the season. But then once they lost to Liverpool and Arsenal. All this came up again, and, and that's Sunday after they lost to Arsenal, there was you know a lot of talk about you know the, the same old situation at Chelsea. But okay, so it's not just the way I think he's adapted to the system; it's also the way the players are so completely taken to. I mean, what, I'm heard, what I've heard from say the Chelsea training ground is that they, a lot of them actually find Conte's tra- coaching quite boring at the moment because so much you them have so much free time during weeks without European games and that, and then to kind of just keep fitness ticking over. So much of training sessions are basically him physically walking individual players through where he wants them to be in the pitch. And he's actually watching him on a sideline. It's not just this kind of intense ranting that he's become kind of infamous for. He's literally pointing at players where where they should be in a very manic way. So it's like <laughs> there is an element of a conductor of the orchestra to return to another kind of thing that's been talked about with Pep. But he, he's micromanaging that much. Now The, the players kind of get, get bored at the amount that he does this in training. But... And and also, I suppose the amount of kind of video analysis to to show them as well, but because they could see it because it had its immediate effect, and, be, and because it worked so well straight away after the Arsenal game, they've bought into it. It's, you know, it's a boredom they they don't mind, and they they can see the benefits of it.
2: Miguel, brilliant stuff as always. Thanks a million. Maybe players actually want to be bored; they just don't realize it. Um, the way to really fulfill their potential as footballers is to be bored into sum- submission by these. To
3: submit to a leader. Yeah. That's what everybody really wants. There's all this nonsense about, um, you know, liberty and the <laughs> desires of the individual. People actually haven't got a clue what they want. All they want is to be embraced in the, you know, just just to be dominated <laughs> by an Antonio Conte or a Jose Mourinho... Uh, some kind of a cult leader uh, who will do all the thinking for them and free them from having to make their own decisions. There's nothing so so depressing as having to make your own decisions oh, and I'm worrying about off, yeah. if you've made the wrong if you've made the wrong choice. If someone else is making the choice, you don't need to worry about that. You can just concentrate on service and. Uh, you know maybe we don't like to hear it but it seems to be a very attractive state of mind for for a lot of people just uh, blind obedience to uh, to the leader why
2: haven't we mentioned Jeff Hendricks goal I'm about to wrap things up here we haven't mentioned Jeff Hendricks I'm going to describe it as a wonder goal again
3: I think it's because we were saving the best till last oh, oh. his first touch I liked In,
2: his, in the, he was interviewed afterwards and he said yeah
3: I don't score enough I haven't been scoring enough goals
2: and I've decided I'm going to change that I've been taking a sh- lot of shots in training yeah. annoying quite a few people <laughs> yeah. but uh, and you could see it, in, it, it even in the gambles he took a couple of times with I'd say with midfielders especially midfielders who feel they have a few goals in them yeah. they, they're, they're probably frustrated a lot of the time. they think I should be getting forward like, for myself to get a goal but I'm, it's a bit risky I'll play I'll, I'll a safe option and position myself here rather than bombing forward mm. this time he's like no I'll get forward and hit an unbelievable goal I presume, yeah. presume everyone's probably seen it at this stage but ball uh, lashed towards him at a pretty decent height. Managed to get his foot up, take it down. Then there was a second touch where he just nudged a, it, just nudged it a little bit with his tie His eyes fixed on the ball at all times, and then whacked in a volley from twenty-five yards. More yeah. of that, please, Jeff Hendrick.
3: Yeah, it was it was beautiful. And I mean, what he says about annoying people is quite funny because, you know. A, a gl- glory-seeking as a midfielder is bad for the team, but sometimes you just got to do it, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. especially when you cost ten million. Is he is he Burnley's record signing? He's he's yeah. certainly not far off, and he has a bad game. Everyone goes, we paid ten million for this twat, and yeah, you know, all he's done maybe is played is played it safe and played responsibly and filled in gaps and given you know good passes to the people around him, but nothing showy, nothing that people remember. People are like. um, eating crisps and drinking beer and, You know, drinking non-alcoholic beer, I don't know, the Premier League. And not really noticing any of that. Everybody notices when you score a great goal. Oh, how could you not? So, you know, once or twice a season, yeah, it always helps.
2: We've got another podcast out today. It's going to feature a chat about Anthony Joshua, who he impressed in a bit of a joke of a fight, to be honest, against Eric Molina at the weekend. But he will now be fighting Vladimir Klitschko in a few months' time in April. So that's a big one that we'll get stuck into, as well as Katie Taylor's second professional victory with Andy Lee. And we'll be talking about a fairly dominant weekend for the Irish teams. Bar Connacht, I suppose, who just fell off late on in their game against WASP. But three wins out of four. is pretty impressive in European terms. So, all that to come. If you get a chance to listen to that, please do. In the meantime, thanks very much, Ken. Thank you, Anne. And thanks for listening. Take care.
0: Target.